On the 10th of May, 1940, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister, at last uh, achieving a lifelong ambition, an ambition to climb higher uh, in political office than his father, Randolph Churchill, had reached. But the circumstances were grim. He was hated by members of the Conservative Party as a turncoat. He had, in fact, changed political parties twice. Uh, He wasn't the choice of the establishment. People from the king to archbishops preferred the Earl of Halifax. Fortunately, the Earl of Halifax realized that he wasn't up to the job and so deferred. But worst of all, the country was at war and the picture was bleak and it's impossible to imagine the stress In public, Churchill knew he had to lead with confidence, with panache and consummate skill, and he was up to that job. But behind the scenes, the weight on his shoulders was felt by all those closest to him. So much so that on the 27th of July, just a few weeks after he took office, his wife Clementine, Clemmy, wrote this superb letter to her husband. And I'm going to read the letter to you. 10 Downing Street, Whitehall, June 27, 1940. My darling, I hope you will forgive me if I tell you something that I feel you ought to know. One of the men in your entourage, a devoted friend, has been to me and told me that there's a danger of your being generally disliked by your colleagues and subordinates because of your rough, sarcastic, and overbearing manner. It seems that your private secretaries have agreed to behave like schoolboys and take what's coming to them, and then escape out of your presence, shrugging their shoulders. Higher up, if an idea is suggested, say at a conference, you are supposed to be so contemptuous that presently no ideas, good or bad, will be forthcoming. I was astonished and upset because in all these years I have been accustomed to all those who have worked with you and under you, loving you, I said this and I was told, no doubt it's the strain. My darling Winston, I must confess that I have myself noticed a deterioration in your manner and you are not so kind as you used to be. It is for you to give the orders and if they are bungled, except for the King, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Speaker of the House of Commons, you can sack and, uh, uh, anyone and everyone. Therefore, with this terrific power... You must combine urbanity, kindness, and, if possible, Olympic charm. You used to quote, On règne sur les âmes que par le calme. One can reign over hearts only by keeping one's composure. I cannot bear that those who serve the country and yourself should not love as well as admire and respect you. I cannot bear it. Besides, you won't get the best results by irascibility and rudeness. They will breed either dislike or a slave mentality, for, of course, rebellion in wartime is out of the question. Please forgive your loving, devoted, and watchful Clemmy. P.S. I wrote this at Chequers last Sunday, tore it up, but here it is now. That must have been a scary letter to write. It must have been a very hard letter to receive. The extent to which it worked is debatable. (laughs) Uh, Few dispute that Churchill could be an impossible man to work for. And yet, one of the things that is remarkable about him is that his staff did love him and would do anything for him. So he obviously got something right. But it raises a big question. Uh, When we are in stressful circumstances, how on earth do we get calm and stay calm? Especially when it's necessary because of the circumstances, but also when it's just for our own well-being. What about the times of acute danger? What about persecution? Again, I'm not talking about what Christians have to deal with in this country. We know nothing of persecution. How quick we in the West, as evangelicals, are quick to jump on the persecution notion. But it's an absurdity. 
I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Syria, about Iraq, about China, about North Korea, and so on and so forth. I wonder if you saw the article in the Independent just a couple of weeks ago by Paul Vallely, who's a he used to work in third, uh, write for Third Way magazine. He's now a professor of contemporary ethics. And uh, it was in The Independent, which was a surprising place to find it, but it was great. It's on their website still. Go and have a look. Um, but it's a scary article. And he said this. And the article was, I think the title was something like, The Most Persecuted People in the World. And um, he said this. Most people in the, the West would be surprised by the answer to the question, who are the most persecuted people in the world? According to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular group with members in 38 states worldwide, 80, 80% of all religious discrimination in the world today is directed against Christians. 80%. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity in the United States estimates that 100,000 Christians die every year because of their faith. That is 11 every hour. The Pew Research Center says that hostility to religion reached a new high in 2012 when Christians faced some form of discrimination in 139 countries, almost three quarters of the world's nations. We in this country know nothing of persecution. Faced with that, how do you keep calm? I wonder if you've ever experienced true terror. I mean, actual terror, not just movies and stuff. I've only experienced it once or twice. I've only experienced a a moment when I have uh, actually screamed out loud in terror. Can you keep calm then? Well, the life of David is remarkable because it shows us that it is not utterly inconceivable. Never forget, you see, David, for years, decades, were confronted with life-threatening terror. And I use that word advisedly. Even when he was just a teenager... Again, we forget how young he was when he was anointed by Samuel. As we said yesterday, maybe 14 or 15. Well, let us think about David's predicament, his life. And uh, before we dive into Psalm 59 again, let's turn back to 1 Samuel 18. Now, of course, in chapter 17, uh, the teenage wee strap of a lad, David, had slain the giant Goliath. And as we said yesterday, it's not because of great skills or courage, although these are indisputable. He was courageous. He was good with a stone. But that's not why Goliath died. He died because God had raised David up as the new anointed leader of the people, the one who would save God's people from their enemy. This ruddy-faced, slightly wild, sheep-herding kid used by God to save the people. He was the champion. As a result, well, David's popularity soared, as you would expect. He was the savior. Just as Churchill steered this country to victory, so David protected Israel. No wonder in chapter 18, verse 2, David kept, uh, Saul kept David by his side. And that was a mixed privilege because he was just a sort of minstrel, a singer of songs. Um, but, you know, Saul wanted him close. And he would spend hours with the king playing his harp and singing songs, some of which presumably have become our psalms. And you can see that in chapter 16, verse 23, but don't look it up now. And in the early verses of chapter 18, it brought him into contact with the one who would become his closest friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. It's an astonishing friendship, a wonderful model of male intimate friendship. 
again, the Bible gets things so much better than we do. I think as a culture, blokes don't know how to be close, intimate friends. But that's a whole other story we could talk about another day. But it also, with David so close, it enabled him to send him on difficult military missions there in verse 5. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. He was only a boy. Or perhaps over the subsequent years, maybe 20, 22. He was successful. The army was delighted to have him. After all, he he was their guy. And so the people sang... Rather an exaggeration, but you get the drift. Look at verse 7. Saul slain his thousands. Yes, Saul had his time, but David his tens of thousands. But what effect would that have on Saul? After all, his fighting days were probably long gone. There was no way his legacy could compete It's like me, you know, watching Wimbledon as a sort of middle-aged and rather poor amateur and thinking, well, I might be okay at tennis. That's, that's, that's me. (laughs) On the left. Um, But there's no way I'll catch up with Federer now. I mean, you know, it's too late. He's 33 and has already won 17 Grand Slams. I'm 43 and I haven't won... Well, any Grand Slams. I know, it's tragic, isn't it? I know. Sorry? A prestigious county championship. I haven't even got one of them under my belt. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll just have to deal with that. Um, but, but so you know, for Saul, it's like watching Federer and thinking, well, it's too late. And when, the ki- when you're the king, you're, you're meant to be the one who commands the people's allegiance. But it's very different now. You see, it's actually not just about professional jealousy. This is also about profound insecurity and dictator logic. Have a look at verse 8 and 9. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, but me, only thousands. What more can he get but... The kingdom. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. In some circumstances, having a close eye on someone, that's a comfort. But not this time. And then things get really weird. Look at verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Can you imagine? Uh, There's a huge amount I don't understand about those two verses, some of the more mysterious verses in the Bible. Uh, you know, what was this, in quotes, evil spirit from God doing? Well, we need a little bit of explanation back from chapter 16. Just turn back to 1614, where the contrast between Saul and David is quite explicit. Just as God's spirit came on David at his anointing, so the spirit departed from Saul. You know, only one can be God's anointed king by the Spirit. So verse 14, Now the Spirit of Yahweh had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Yahweh tormented him. Now, we're not meant to suddenly think there's a sort of fourth member of the Trinity who's evil. No, forget that. That's uh, that's complete nonsense. Uh, And the language is curious. But this is what commentator John Woodhouse points out. He says, rather than seeing this as a morally evil spirit or some way, it's better to take it, as the ESV translation puts it, as a harmful or distressing spirit. In other words, it is the judgment of God handing him over to the consequence of his sin. We touched on this yesterday. Saul was disobedient to God, which is why the monarchy was forfeit. Just as Paul describes judgment working in Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? God hands them over to the consequences of their sin. And so with here, with Saul, it is a combination of God's purpose and Saul's heart 
He hands him over to the consequence of his disobedience of God. There can only be one anointed king, anointed by the Spirit, one Christ, Messiah. Okay, Saul had been the Christ to begin with. And then the Spirit departed and came on Paul, on David, and David was now the Christ. Saul's suffering is the outworking of his unwillingness to trust in God. I agree there's mystery there. We can chat about it later. Maybe it'll come up in questions. I don't doubt. But I suppose all I want to say for now, though, is it it must have been agonizing, you know, to be totally upstaged by this upstart teenage court musician was galling enough. And jealous thoughts quickly degenerate into murderous thoughts. So perhaps Paul, uh, Saul, sorry, in verse 13, is wise to send David away to the army. But that's double-edged because he goes off to the army and he's jolly successful. Uh, Perhaps he thinks he'll control him by marrying him off to his daughter Merab. But David thinks, well, I'm just, just you know, a troubadour. (laughs) Who am I to become a member of the royal house? I'm just a minion. So in verse 18, he declines. In the end, it seems that another daughter of Saul, Michal, is in love with David, and so he marries uh, her off to him by the end of, of the chapter. But the worst thing for Saul is not only do David's military successes increase, Um, If you look closely in the chapter, there's a pretty gruesome way of measuring his success, but I won't uh, pick up on that directly. Um, But his popularity grows as well, not least with his own family. I mean, for Saul, it must have been utterly galling that not only that Jonathan is his best friend, but his uh, his daughter, Michal, they're both undivided David fans. And that's devastating. So verse 28 of chapter 18, when Saul realized that Yahweh was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. Saul would try again and again to have him killed. But in their different ways, David's fans, Michal and Jonathan, members of the royal household, the Prince of Wales and the Princess Royal, if you like, They would do all they could to protect the court musician. Michal helps him escape the palace uh, in chapter 19, away from murderous troops, verses 11 to 13. She uses that classic, hide an idol in the bed gag. Always good if you're in trouble. Hide an idol in the bed and uh, pretend that David's too ill to come out. It's quite funny, really. Look at chapter 19, verse 15. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the, he- at the head was some goat's hair. <laughs> Good gag. But we must understand, David's life really is in mortal danger. Perhaps he's 20 by now. He's lived with Saul and his mood swings for perhaps five years. Can you imagine? And and to top it all, the threat comes from the head of state. God's head of state. And when that happens, as victims of countless dictators down the centuries have discovered, if the head of state is after you, there is nowhere safe at home. The only hope is exile. If you want to stay alive. And that's what David does. He goes into exile. He has actual enemies. His life is in actual danger. He is terribly vulnerable. And we must not underestimate this for one minute as we come to the psalm. Because you see, what's so striking about David's situation is that he had to endure this for years. That's the thing that's come forcibly to me over the last few weeks. This went on for years. Let's suppose he kills Goliath at around the age of 15, 14, 15. 1 Samuel tells us he does not become king until he's 30. 
15 years of having to cope with the insane jealousy and murderous mania of the king. One of the hardest things must have been the knowledge, though, that he never asked for this. He never chose to be God's anointed. It wasn't his idea. God chose him. He was off with the sheep. None of the family thought he was up to the job. He was out with the sheep when Samuel pitched up at Jesse's pad. He didn't choose this. So God, what are you playing at? Do you see, David's problems are a direct consequence of God's choice. If God had left David alone, he wouldn't have all this stress. That's where Psalm 59 comes in. But before we look at Psalm 59 in detail, I want to make a little sort of detour temporarily as we just think about how the Psalms work. Yesterday, we considered the fact that the Psalms are a curiosity in the Bible because most of the Bible is, you know, from God to us. And yet the Psalms are from us or from God's people in the Old Testament to God. They're from down to up, if you like. That's the direction of the Psalms. They're prayers, praises, pleas, desperation. And yet the extraordinary thing is that they're contained in the Scriptures and therefore at the same time as being from from people to God, God uses them as from him to us. But uh, I want to think of another aspect of the Psalms that we don't often think about. Um, And I've been really helped by... um, Uh, some of the uh, uh, work of this uh, man, an American Old Testament scholar called Walter Brueggemann. And um, he's written a a number of books on the Psalms, but a a great little book. It's only about 75 pages. I I asked Alex, he's coming in a couple of days with the bookstall with 10 of those. I asked him to see if he could get hold of some of these. He was going to try. But it's a little book called The Spirituality of the Psalms. And um, he, you know, he comments on the fact that Uh, Many uh, commentators notice there are lots of different types of psalm, and we know that, you know, the coronation psalms, the the songs of ascent, you know, the psalms in the 120s on, those are the sort of songs for the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, They're the Passover or the Hallel psalms, the Hallelujah psalms, that there were the songs Jesus and the the disciples sang as they went up to Gethsemane. the lament psalms, as well as, of course, the psalms of David. So there's a whole range of different sort of category within the 150. And we must understand, as we're looking at the psalms, we must sort of try and work out which type they are, because that helps us. But what Brueggemann does is take a sort of step back a bit, and he notices how across all the different categories, there tend to be, well, I suppose you could call them three moods that the psalms articulate. Um, and, and it's as vague as that. It's not an official, you know, you won't find these moods sort of uh, delineated in, in any Bible or whatever. But I think he's onto something because he notices how, as in life, moods can shift, uh, you know, change by just very small things. And so sometimes a psalm contains several different moods. You notice that, how, you know, you can, it can start down in the dumps and somehow by the end it's up, up, up on the mountaintop. Or, or sometimes it goes down and up and left, right and center and inside out. All kinds of things go on. Um, and we've got to engage with those moods. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when looking at the Psalms is to treat them like, I don't know, a work of systematic theology or, or even an epistle of Paul as if they are, you know, articulating an argument. Well, sometimes there's an argument to it, but actually the crucial thing is the mood, the passion, the, the intensity of what is being expressed to God. And if we do not do justice to that intensity, we will completely fail to, make, to get the point of a psalm. That's why a psalm can say the same thing ten times. You know, you could sum up a psalm by saying, I was in a hole, but God got me out. Great. And you think, why spend 23 and a half verses saying that? What a waste of time. Well, that's to miss the point. So what Brueggemann does is he identifies sort of three, three primary moods, and 
he, he gets us to think about when you were reading a psalm is where within these three does this psalm lie and, and does it move from one to another? And, and the three um, are when the world is sort of in its right place, sort of it is oriented correctly, when it feels out of kilter, it's disoriented, and then maybe when that disorientation is, is sort of healed and there's a reorientation or a new orientation. Let me just explain. So the first, the songs of orientation, these, these are the psalms that speak of, you know, the reality of God's provision and purpose, a sense of order in the world. You, you pull back the curtains in the morning, and it's, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and you're thinking, this is a great day. I'm really looking forward to this day. And, and you know, the world is at peace. We can sing our confidence to God. And these songs remind us of how things are as they, they were in the beginning, in creation, when all is well with the world. The vast majority of our Christian songs copy this type of psalm. When all is well. If that was the only type of song and the only type of psalm that we sang, we would very quickly become utterly discouraged and indeed cynical. Think of some of our Christian brothers and sisters in Gaza. Did you know we have some there? Can they open their curtains if they have curtains in the morning and sing, ah, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and God is good all the time. Isn't it marvelous? The sun is shining. If we only sing songs and psalms of orientation, in other words, everything is in its right place, then we'll think that we are living on a different planet, or worse, God is living on a different planet. And actually, very often, it is the people who are living comfortable lives, who are sitting pretty, who, who are sorted, who are quite happy to keep on singing these songs, but there are many other people who, frankly, it sticks in the gullet, and they can't sing these songs. You know, I just really want to praise you, God, because you're just such a cool God, really. when thugs are bashing your, down, your front door down in order to behead anyone. I don't know whether you've been following the guy who's known as the vicar of Baghdad and his tweets and blog. He baptized a child not so long ago. Child's age five was cut in half. In times like that, you can't sing a song of orientation. You sing a song of disorientation that express the frustration and pain at the world. They cry to God when there's persecution, when the bad guys don't just seem to be winning, they are winning. And that goes against what the Bible says about God's fairness and justice. Yes, he blesses the faithful, but the unrighteous appear to be far more blessed. That's the complaint of Psalm 73, isn't it? They're strong, they're fit, they're healthy, they have enough food, they've got more money than they don't know what to do with, and I'm trying to be holy and they persecute me. This is what Brueggemann says about the songs of disorientation. He says, in these psalms, in the Bible, nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is precluded, nothing is inappropriate. Everything properly belongs in the conversation of the heart, to withhold parts of life from this conversation is, in fact, to withhold parts of life from the sovereignty of God. Thus, these psalms make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech. And everything brought to speech must be directed and addressed to God because he's the final reference of life. Everything. And I cannot stress how important this is, because, you see, God allows it. Not only that, he speaks through it. 
Even a psalm like Psalm 88, whose concluding line is, Darkness is my closest friend, thus says the Lord. Nothing is inappropriate. You see, (laughs) if we don't mouth off to God, we'll be in in danger of mouthing off about God to others. Isn't that what we do? I confess my sin. That is what I do. I mouth off about God and I say, I can't believe he let us go through that. Whereas God wants me to say that to him. God, I can't believe you let me go through that. What are you doing, God? I'm going to play you some U2. It's about time, someone said. Yes, I agree. I have been so self-controlled over the last three or four years. I, I, I don't think I've played you 2 in All Souls for at least four years. So I'm going to now. And this is a really early one, 1983. And this is, I have no doubt in my mind, this is a contemporary psalm of disorientation. It was written when Bono was only 23, and in the early days of U2, when you listen to the first few albums, they were really influenced by the punk scene in the 70s. But this one is provoked by the Northern Ireland Troubles. It's called Sunday Bloody Sunday. Now, the point is, if you know anything about Irish history, Sunday, uh, Bloody Sunday, well, it refers to several different days on which terrible, terrible, terrible things happened most of which were achieved by the British Army. What is fascinating is that this song is not a rant against the Brits. More astonishingly, this really is a psalm because what he does is to turn it round and he sort of conflates Bloody Sunday with Bloody Friday. You'll see what I mean. music expresses rage. That is a punk psalm expressing rage to God, which is precisely what God wants us to do. The Bible contains songs of rage. How long, O Lord, must we sing this song? And we are still singing this song. And it's amazing. When you two tour, they always sing this, and they will always project on the screens images of the latest conflict. When we saw them at Wembley in the last tour, there was a big thing going on in Iran with uh, street fighting and stuff. So there were images uh, from Tehran. If it was today, it would be Gaza, Syria. Iraq, Ukraine, North Korea, parts of China, parts of Russia, parts of England. No, don't imagine that we've got it sorted in this country. There are plenty, many, who sing songs of disorientation amongst us. 
How long, O Lord, how long must we sing this song? How long must we wait to claim the battle, the victory that Jesus won? Oh yes, this is a Christian song. But the astonishing thing in the Bible is these songs of disorientation find not always resolution, but a reorientation to songs that rejoice in something that's changed. And I think, therefore, whenever we study the Psalms, one of the things we need to do is to look for where those transitions are between everything being okay to nothing being okay to somehow something being resolved, a way to live with the tension as we wait, perhaps to the whole problem being solved. So let us come now to Psalm 59 and consider where this psalm might fit. I don't think it's an accident that it sounded a bit like a sort of gangster rap when we were listening to it earlier. And you probably thought, what's all that about? Well, I think it was entirely appropriate because this is a song of danger and rage. This is on the streets. This is like gangland warfare, except the leader of the gang is the king. And so David prays. And the horrors are described very vividly. But in the face of it, he, he is calm somehow. And it's not because he's a sort of Zen master who's perfected the art of mind-emptying meditation. Let's see how he does it. And the Psalms headline tells us exactly where we are. David and Michal are at home, uh, but they can't get to sleep. Perhaps they heard something outside. Have you ever been in that situation? Some, you, you hear a twig snap, or someone kicks over a milk bottle, or, or something outside. What was that? And uh, you twitch the curtains. Back in Samuel 19, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. David gets out of bed, flicks the curtains, and I know him. What's he doing here? What's interesting is how, within this psalm, the mood shifts between urgent prayer, simply telling God how it is, what it's like, and yet somehow spiritual confidence. There's something very real about that. It's as if David is preaching to himself as he prays and sings. It's a good listen, uh, discipline. Do you ever preach to yourself? You may not feel confident about standing up in front of a crowd to give a Bible message. That's not everybody's cup of tea. That's fine. Uh, but, but nobody can speak to your hidden thought life like you can. Talk about privileged access. This is what Paul Tripp says. No one is more influential in your life than you are. Because no one talks to you more than you do. So what do you talk to yourself about? Well, I think this psalm comes in sort of two parallel parts. And, you know, you can sort of block it off into two main sections, verses 1 to 10 and 11 to 17. And what we see in, um, in the first half, uh, section of each half, if you like, is David's urgent prayers. And you can sum it up with just three words. Deliver, save, punish. Did David and Michal kneel by the bed together to pray that night? I wouldn't be at all surprised. They're both in danger from Saul's hateful jealousy now. It's an obvious prayer. Deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me. It's an obvious prayer. They're just outside the flipping front door. Be my fortress because my home is no longer safe. I remember when we lived in Uganda, there were, there were days when I really did feel insecure. In the early months, I... Uh, I'd been arrested twice, not for serious crime, but because the police thought I was easy pickings for a hefty bribe. Particularly around Christmas time, they would often pick on whites to pay for Christmas presents. It says a lot about the situation. They were not paid enough. I had many friends who were Christians in the Ugandan police. They were paid hardly nothing. So if you wanted to get Christmas presents for your kids, you had to take bribes. And, you know, Mzungus, the white man, they're easy prey. The traffic police, there they were. I was arrested twice. They wanted a bribe. It completely threw me. 
I refused to pay a bribe both times. But there would be days when I would have to sit in my car before driving to work. I'd be shaking. I'd pray, Lord, just get me through this. We had police checkpoints probably once a week checking papers. It was normal. And that went on for years. But I would drive home at the end of the day, get through the gates, and I could relax. I was at home. I was safe. I was secure. But then one day we discovered that our gardener had been stealing cash from us over a period of months, and my world was shattered. It was a small thing. My reaction was totally out of proportion. Rachel didn't understand me to begin with. I was, I, was, I was just jelly, suddenly. Because, you see, my sanctuary had been shattered. Every day, I would be out in the world, and I'd be sort of on edge. I'd come through the gates, and I'd be safe. And then suddenly, I couldn't be safe at home either. Small thing. Well, with David, his home was no sanctuary at all either. His house was surrounded. He was on 24-hour observation. His hope was lost. Saul was king. Saul's in control. He'd not survive the next day. Except Saul wasn't in control. David and Michal pray. If his house couldn't be a fortress, then God could. Save me from evildoers. They're literally after my blood. He calls on God to see. Just as David peers around the curtains, he says to God in verses 3 and 4, See, look. These conspirators, they're after me, and I'm innocent. Not innocent absolutely in sort of moral perfection, but innocent of what they're after me for. So he prays, Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Yahweh, God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. Arise and punish. This is divine jealousy, divine justice, you see. This is why in verse 5 he focuses on the God who is Yahweh, the Lord. And we look at verse 5 and our liberal sensitivities are shaken and shocked and offended, aren't they? Of course, it's nothing compared to some of the psalms about sort of breaking babies' heads and all that stuff. Well, if you're shocked by that, then you've obviously not suffered very much. It's far better to voice it to God and let God deal with it than take the law into your own hands, isn't it? Or would you rather people went around bashing people's heads? God must judge, mustn't he? He must judge what is going on in Iraq, in Syria, in Gaza, in Israel, in Ukraine, in this country, in the terrible things our country, our government, our people, our neighborhoods do. God must judge that, mustn't he? Or he wouldn't be God. You see, we forget what calling for mercy can mean for the victims of sin. Are you saying that my suffering is meaningless? implies it doesn't matter. We'll think more about mercy tomorrow. But in both halves, you see, what is fascinating is David shifts into the facts. You see, it's not paranoia. This is real danger. You see, David's desperate predicament is, is truly grim. You know, they return at the evening snarling dogs. Perhaps they hear the soldiers chattering outside, gossiping. Perhaps they're having a few laughs about what they're planning Perhaps they're muttering about what they're going to do to David once they got him. (laughs) He thought he was so good. (laughs) He thought he was immune. But look at him now. You know, we've all seen the gangster movies, haven't we? We can imagine the scene. The snarling dogs is not an inappropriate image. They're slobbering and slavering at the opportunity that awaits. The interesting thing is that the words in verses 14 and 15 are almost identical to to the words in in verse 7 and so on. Um, And yet there's a subtle shift, subtle variation in the last line. In verse 7, he focuses on their words. That's ironic. They spew out filth and threats, and they think they're untouchable. Who can hear us? Do you get the irony of that? Well, David can for a start, but so can God. They're not as safe as they like to think they are. And because of it, David is not as unsafe as they think he is. 
then their hunger, verse 15, is quite an indictment of these soldiers, isn't it? They're not behaving like human beings, but animals with base passions and instincts. There's no moral compass to guide them, just their lusts and their stomach. If they don't get what they want, they howl like wolves or perhaps more like toddlers. God must intervene. So why hasn't he? But David's not thrown because he's preaching to himself as he sings his prayer to God. David's rock-solid peace, you see. God laughs and David sings. God laughs. That's not malicious laughter. That is, this is the laughter of absurdity. This is, you know, in a way, I, I suppose it's a bit like Monty Python-type laughter. You know, Monty Python is great because it's just absurd. It's ridiculous. God is the God of all creation. What can these howling dogs do to thwart God and his purposes? It's laughable. It's a joke. You, I mean, you've got to laugh, haven't you? After all, David was anointed by God. No wonder God scoffs, just like God does with the rebellious nations in Psalm 2. Just like God does at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. His laughter is itself an act of judgment, an exposure of the absolute absurdity of thinking we can take God on and justice will prevail. And that is why God, uh, David knows that God is his fortress. And so he sings. He sings. Notice how the, the, the dogs are prowling around at night and, and around the house. And, and presumably it's in the middle of that very night that David is singing these psalm, uh, words and drafting this psalm. And maybe he came back to it later to sort of touch it up a bit. But He doesn't know how things are going to pan out exactly, but look at his confidence for the following morning, verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love because you're my fortress. (laughs) You're my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You are God, my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. So do you see the contrast? Saul's plan for David in the morning was death. David's plan for David in the morning was singing. God is his fortress, his refuge in times of trouble. This is a time of trouble. God is his strength, and so he sings praise and prayer to the one who can act, to the one who will act. In fact, to the one alone who can act. For no one else could protect him except the sovereign God. So whose mourning plan will be fulfilled? Saul's or David's? Death or singing? Well, we know the answer. It was, of course, David. Because with Michal's help, he escaped through a window and off into the night. And the snarling dogs were left to find goat's hair under the pillow. And David survives to become king, the anointed one after all. But let's get real for a minute. You see, God was his refuge, and he did protect his life that night and on many subsequent nights. But don't forget, David, when he left that night, ended up on the run for years. Years. How he must have dreamed and reminisced and looked back on the few nights before when he was just in bed with his wife at home. He faced dangers for years. So God being his refuge doesn't mean that life is easy. God's refuge, God's protection sustains him through dangers. It's not escaping from dangers, it's protection through dangers. And they result... And all these dangers resulted from him being God's anointed. Well, I want to come briefly back to ourselves. We'll have more time to think of how this impacts us tomorrow and the next days. But just for today, we do well to remember this. You see, for the Christian life is not one of ease and relaxation. It can be incredibly tough. Not despite being Christian, but because of being Christian. 
There's a song that sings, in Jesus all our problems disappear. Absolute codswallop. Because of Jesus, some of our problems are just beginning, mate. Just try telling our Christians in Aleppo. I've got a friend who's a pastor in Aleppo, uh, northern Syria. He's a pastor of a church that's been there for uh, 150 years. And I was Skyping him regularly, uh, basically for about 14 months. They hadn't been able to leave more than a square kilometer from uh, their house and the church. The church was uh, just less than a kilometer away from the boundary. They were on the government army side and the rebels were just less than a kilometer away. They knew that their church was a target. Uh, he sent photographs on Facebook at Easter for their Easter morning service because it's uh, orthodox timing. It was a week later than our Easter. They had 400 people in church on Easter Sunday, all of whom had had to walk. I've not been able to get through to him for the last two months. I, I, the phone just, just doesn't connect. I don't understand. You see, in the end, it all comes down to what God has promised ultimately for his people. Now, yeah, David was unique. He was the anointed king. We're not all anointed in the same way. But here's the amazing thing. In Romans, Paul says this, the spirit who is God's down payment, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. God truly is our refuge. He doesn't protect us from trouble. He saves us through trouble. I need to preach that to myself. I want to close with one of the great giants of the 20th century, a man called Richard Vermbrandt. If you know Jill Bond at church, who, who runs uh, mission partner contacts and stuff, she used to work for Richard Vermbrandt. She's got amazing stories about him. Vermbrandt was the leader of the Romanian underground church. He was imprisoned by Ceausescu's regime for 14 years. 11 of those years were in solitary confinement. And, you know, they developed a system of tapping on the walls. It's archetypal, isn't it? So he could contact with other people. He said this. When I look back on the 14 years of prison, and by the way, don't imagine that he was unaffected by this. He came out and had profound psychological problems as a result, and the whole family did. So he wasn't unscathed. But he said this. When I look back on the 14 years of prison, it was sometimes a very happy time. Other prisoners and even the guards often wondered at how happy Christians could be under the most terrible circumstances. I imagine, too, that nightingales would sing if they knew that after finishing the song they'd still be killed for it. Christians in prison danced for joy. Around me were Job's, some much more afflicted than Job had been, but I knew the end of Job's story how he received twice as much as he had before. I had around me men like Paul Lazarus, hungry and un, full of uncared-for boils, but I knew that angels would take them all to the bosom of Abraham. I saw them as they will be in the future. I saw in the shabby and dirty and weak martyr next to me the splendidly crowned saint of tomorrow. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Amen.